CDSW wants to hear from you. Go to cdsw.com survey to submit your feedback and be entered to win one of two Slatter Island Discovery Passes. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Any problems in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Yemen are all associated with Iran. So if you instill this premise in the public that, well, all the problems we have originate in Iran, it's easy to come to the conclusion, well, the way to get rid of the cancer is go straight to Iran, take out the tumor, and all the other problems will be solved. I mean, it's an absurd argument. That's Ervant Abrahamian, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Ervant Abrahamian on the U.S. and Iran, four decades of hostility. The danger of war between the U.S. and Iran is increasing. U.S. forces virtually surround that Middle Eastern country, and they are being ramped up. In classic gunboat diplomacy, a U.S. aircraft carrier battle group is positioned off the coast of Iran. Imagine if Iran had a naval armada off of New York or had troops in Canada. Why would Iran risk an armed confrontation with Washington? U.S. firepower would obliterate it. The Secretary of State demands that Iran, quote, behave like a normal nation, unquote. By that, does he mean like the U.S. with its bases everywhere and almost trillion-dollar military budget? Why did the U.S. abandon the Iran deal, which according to the U.N. was working? Instead of sending warships, missiles, and bombers to the Persian Gulf, Washington should send diplomats. We should have dialogue rather than hectoring and threatening war. Our guest today is Ervant Abrahamian. Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Iranian and Middle Eastern History at the City University of New York. He's the author of Iran Between Two Revolutions, A History of Modern Iran, and The Coup, 1953, The CIA, and the Roots of Modern U.S.-Iranian Relations. I talked with him at the University of Denver on April 24, 2019. Welcome to the program. Thank you, David. Thank you. Forty years have passed since the revolution overthrowing the Shah and the establishment of the Islamic Republic of Iran. In broad strokes, where do you see Iran today? Well, I think what you're seeing after 40 years, in some ways the regime has solidified, you can say, it's much... uh, the, ex- the expectation, actually, at the time of the revolution, that this was a temporary uh, phenomenon, it, it would collapse. Uh, it's been able to survive mainly through dramatic economic social reforms that from 1980 on uh, really brought a lot of improvements in the standard of living, especially in the countryside. And that strengthened the regime very much. Now, of course, it's under the pressure of start round to rewriting it. They imposed on that French constitution the concept of clerical rule. So under the old constitution, they had an umbrella where the chief cleric was supposed to be then the guide of the republic, and he was supposed to be then the leader. In the West, we call him the supreme leader. Actually, he's just called the leader in Iran. Um, so there, it's often called a dictatorship, which is actually a misnomer because uh, there's a lot of electoral system in this very hybrid. Your president is elected, uh, parliament is elected, and technically, actually, the supreme leader is elected. There's an assembly of 
uh, religious experts who elect the supreme leader, but those ex- uh, experts are actually supposed to be elected, and they are elected. It's sort of a con- rich, controlled election, and very few people participate because they know it's n- not meaningful. But when it comes to uh, parliamentary elections and council elections, local con- there is a great deal of participation. People take it seriously if there is any sign that there is really a, a rivalry between a conservative and a reformer, uh, people participate. So in an ordinary uh, common Iranian uh, election, you might get 70 to 80 percent of the electorate actually voting, which is quite something. I mean, in America, we'd be lucky if we get 55 percent of the electorate voting. So, you know, 70, 80 percent is not bad. And, you know, the leader in Iran could very well tell America that, you know, we'll negotiate with Trump once you get true democracy in America and you can increase your electoral participation up to maybe 70 percent, then we'll take you seriously. Well, speaking of uh, memories, uh, talk about the 1953 coup, Operation Ajax, uh, organized by the CIA mm. with the participation of the British uh, MI6 intelligence service that overthrew the uh, government of Mohammad Mossadegh and brought the Shah back to the peacock throne. Well, I think 53 for Iran is actually a landmark event. It's the big landmark event before 79. So it's like a guillotine that comes down in Iranian history and nothing starts moving again until 79. So for most Iranians, uh, 53 is the formative period in uh, modern history. In the West, you find that there is no memory so you, at all. It's not just that I don't expect the average American to know something, but you find that even uh, leading Americans, uh, diplomats who worked in Iran, really were not aware of 53. It was like a Orwellian shredding of history. Uh, there was uh, little mention of it, little memory of it, little talk of it. Um, in fact, people were ignorant of 53, even top diplomats. So when um, 79 revolution came about and students took the hostages and invaded the American embassy, it was a real cultural clash for Iranians, uh, people knew what was the story about behind it. For Americans, this was sort of out of the blue. Why should these people be invading our embassy? We've been good friends for United with Iran all these years. Uh, why are they so ingratious to that they invade? So there was l- this lack of in- uh, understanding over 53. I think it goes to the root of really the conflict between U.S. and Iran. In terms of the uh, Iranian context, and you've or- already used a couple of these terms like hardliners, reformers, and uh, moderates, can you sort that out? Um, it's, it's hard to answer that because it's not clear. It's not political parties necessarily where people have all the same view. But on the whole, what you uh, you can say the hardliners are the people who are very stringent on the uh, clerical leader having tight control and determining policy, while the reformers or moderates are much more in terms of professionals, uh, uh, diplomats, foreign ministry, knowing best how to deal with America, Europe, and so on. And that's on the political top level. But on other issues you find uh, intellectual, um, the diehardists take a very narrow interpretation of Shia Islam. They basically try to legitimize their uh, understanding, their laws on learning from traditions that are based on Shia Islam. While the reformers are much more open to uh, outside ideas, especially the ideas of the Enlightenment, uh, individual rights, uh, open trials. So intellectually you get this conflict between, you can put it simply into, some people call it fundamentalist Islam, I'd call it basically uh, 
much more dogmatic Islam versus people who are much more flexible. And their way of arguing is, yes, Islam is still our basic ideology, but uh, in Islam you should always change the laws to adapt to modern situations. And the modern situations in Iran in the 21st century are not the same as they were in the 8th century Arabia or uh, Middle East. So they're willing to much more adapt to modern concepts. The country is 90% uh, Shia. In terms of Iranian identity, what role does Shia Islam play? Well, there's a strange uh, mixture between Iranian nationalism and Shiism because uh, once uh, Iran was occupied by the Arabs, uh, Muslims, uh, many people adopted Islam But there was also this tension between Iranism and people who spoke Persian and their culture was Persian and the new religion. And out of this tension, you find that there is a much more uh, spreading of Shi ideologies, Shi thinking in Iran. Um, So you can see this in the Shah Nameh and Ferdowsi, I mean, Ferdowsi, writing in around 1000 AD, uh, is a Muslim, but a lot of the stories he he has are actually comes from Iranian history. And a lot of the uh, martyrdom, the notion of martyrdom, Siavash, and so on, that become very important in Shiism were already there in Iranian identity. So it, Shiism was a uh, fit for Iranian way of separating themselves from the Arab world. And after 1500 with the Safavids, when they actually adopted Shiism as the official language... Official religion. uh, So official uh, religion. At that point, you get that 90% of the population gradually converting. So a lot of former uh, Sunnis then actually converted to Shiism. Um, so I would say Shiism, although you can say uh, theologically there are differences, the real difference is that it, in Iran it represents national identity. Well, Iran is far and away the largest uh, Shia country. Uh, neighboring Iraq has a majority uh, Shia population. Mm. Bahrain is also a Shia majority. But where does uh, Iran see itself in terms of its place uh, in the region? Well, I, I don't think Shiism is there really the important issue here. Uh, for for uh, the Islamic Republic, I think they weren't even aware that there were Shi'is, for instance, in uh, Syria or in uh, uh, Yemen. Uh, for them, it was much more a question of I- Iran and protecting Iran, defending Iran after the revolution. But once you had the crisis in other countries, uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, Yemen, uh, those ethnic groups like the Alawis, they would never considered themselves Shi, but because of political reasons, it was useful for them then to make an alliance with Iran. But their main concern of Assad, again, wasn't Shiism. Assad's main concern was survival of his regime. And his base were Alawis, and they were scared of the jihadists in Syria. So it was a natural alliance between uh, Assad and the Alawis and uh, Iran. But it's not really based on, I don't think, religion or theology. It's the same you can say with the uh, Zaydis in Yemen. And the same also in Iraq. A true majority, large population of Arabs are Shi, but they never really saw themselves as Iranian type of Shi'is. They were always separate, the language is different. But because of uh, American intervention, the invasion, a lot of then Iraqi politicians or Shi find it useful to be allied with Iran as their protector. Uh, In your book, The Coup, you write, the U.S. and Iran 
have been locked in a deadly embrace. Uh, You compare the relationship to an iron cage. Well, it wasn't always that way. Uh, I went back a little bit into history, and Jimmy Carter went to Tehran uh, in 1977. In fact, December 31st, New Year's Eve, uh, and there was a you know a reception and banquet for him. The Shah prepared everything lavishly, and uh, Carter said at the time uh, he called Iran an island of stability in one of the most troubled areas in the world. He praised the Shah for his quote great leadership, and noted quote the respect and admiration and love which your people give to you. Well, it wasn't long after that that there were strikes and huge demonstrations. And on January 16, 1979, just a little over a year after that uh, dinner banquet, uh, the Shah fled Iran and the Pahlavi monarchy ended. Yes, that speech actually later, I think, haunted the Carter administration. When he made that speech, now we know that the American ambassador was there and the uh, embassy officials were there. They looked at each other in horror (laughs) because they already knew that there was trouble brewing in Iran. Uh, They weren't at the point of saying there's a revolution, but they really did not expect this speech. And the reason Carter made the speech was because the Shah at that time felt that he was not being given enough support by United States. So it was a compensation for the demonstrations there had been in Washington by the Iranian students against the Shah when he visited. And there was always this complaint from the Shah that that the Carter administration is not backing me. Instead, they're uh, talking about human rights and liberalization. So to reassure the Shah that this wasn't so, Carter came out with this very sort of flattering speech, uh, which then made actually Carter administration very ridiculous because he was talking about stability when the regime was already very unstable. Now, the aforementioned uh, hostages uh, were released the very afternoon of Reagan's inauguration, giving uh, birth to a whole plethora of theories about what kind of secret deal was was struck between Tehran and Washington. Do you use the word collusion? There probably was no collusion in that. The two sides didn't sit down and draft a paper and say, you know, I'll be nice to you if you hold the hostage. I don't think there was that sort of agreement. But I think there was probably a silent tacit idea both in Tehran that if we're going to undermine Carter, it's best to keep the hostages as long as possible and then release them when Reagan comes in. Uh, Again, this would never have been uh, written down, but I'm sure it was a tacit understanding there. I don't know if the later on the secret dealings that Reagan had with Iran and the sale of arms uh, was really tight with that because that came later. But this made it possible for in Iran to think that, well, the Republican administration might be more uh, basically uh, pragmatic or more cynical about, uh, about dealing with, with the re- revolutionary government. The Iran-Contra scandal broke in uh, 1986. Uh, It was uh, characterized infamously by the National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane uh, taking a cake to give to uh, Ayatollah uh, Khomeini. Uh, yes, <laughs> they also sent a Saturday special, night special to the uh, the president uh, Rafsanjani too. I mean, there, it was a a very cynical move because the whole time they had been pressuring the Europeans not to deal with Iran, sell arms to Iran. Meanwhile, there that this this secret deal, and I think there was a lot of you know different layers of it. Uh, one simple explanation was that people in the White House wanted money to give to the Contras. 
the Congress had outlawed that. So one way of getting money was basically smuggling guns to the regime in Iran, then using the money to send to the Contras. So that was that side. Then there was an Israeli side that wanted to, again, have a rapprochement with Iran. They came into the scene and persuaded the, not Reagan himself, but people around him, that this was a way of uh, building bridges. And then the, the way they tried, rationalized it was that they were moderates in, in the regime and they wanted to establish good relations with the moderates. The war with Iraq in the 1980s, uh, Iraq invades uh, Iran in September of 1980, had devastating uh, effects on Iran. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people killed, many more wounded. Uh, but then the U.S. actively joins on the Iraqi side in 1987-88. Uh, the Navy is uh, attacking uh, Iranian oil installations uh, and the like. And then in 1988, uh, the U.S. shoots down uh, Iran Air Flight Number 655, resulting in the death of 290 uh, passengers yeah. and, and crew. Uh, th- that essentially pushed... Khomeini to uh, sue for peace, sue for a negotiation mm. with uh, Iraq. Yes, actually, the war was, a, I think, a fo- another formative period, especially for the, the generation that rules Iran now, because for them, uh, when Saddam Hussein invaded, it was clear for an invasion by international law, the international community should have come to Iran's aid. And then he started using weapons of mass destruction, gas. And during that period, there was no any complaints from the West about it. It was silence. So the lesson the rulers in Iran learned is you can't depend on the West for security because even when uh, illegal weapons are used like gas, the West doesn't get involved in it or doesn't protest. Here, actually, one should say that the U.S. was not involved in the poison gas. That was came mostly from Europe. What the U.S. was complicit in it was it encouraged Arab states, the Gulf states, to pour money, billions of dollars, to Saddam Hussein so he could continue the war because they came to the conclusion that Saddam Hussein had to survive. But the U.S. only came in at the very end. And by then, probably Iran would have had to sue for peace. The premise of Khomeini, when he continued the war, he could have ended the war in 1982, was he thought that if he continued the war, there would be an uprising of Shi'is in uh, Iraq, and that would overthrow Saddam Hussein. And that didn't happen. So the war just continued and continued with a stalemate, with no uprising in in Iraq. And Iranian forces weren't strong enough to go into Baghdad, and the Iraqis weren't strong enough to defeat Iran. So you had basically a sort of uh, stalemate like World War One that went on until basically uh, it became clear to the Iranian elite that the only way to, is to sue for peace. You're listening to Ervant Abrahamyan on the U.S. and Iran, Four Decades of Hostility. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and Ervant Abrahamian's book, The Coup, 1953, The CIA and the Roots of Modern U.S.-Iranian Relations, by calling 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Washington today says Iran is meddling in the Middle East. It's interfering in the internal affairs of the countries of the region. 
It's a rather interesting claim that they make given that the U.S. has a string of bases and actually occupies countries uh, in the region. But explain why this hype threat through the media uh, is so effective in convincing many people that Iran is actually a great strategic danger uh, to the United States and the so-called West. I think there is a strong reservoir of anti-Iranian feelings in America because of the hostage crisis. So you already start with you because of that premise, you can tap into that hostility. But the strategy they're using now is very much the same strategy the neocons use with Saddam Hussein, arguing that Saddam Hussein is the root of all the problems. Now Islamic Republic is the root of the problems. So if you get rid of that source, other problems in the Middle East will be solved. So they're even tying al-Qaeda, ISIS to the Islamic Republic. Uh, Any problems in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Yemen are all associated with Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, they're all seen as proxies of Iran. So if you instill this premise in the public that, well, all the problems we have originate in Iran, it's easy to come to the conclusion, well, the way to get rid of the cancer is go straight to Iran, take out the tumor, and all the other problems will be solved. And it's interesting the speech Pompeo made where he said, well, we're willing to negotiate with the Islamic Republic, but we have 12 conditions they have to meet. And some of those conditions were like somehow the problems in Syria, Yemen had to cease because Iran was causing it. Then U.S. could then sit down to negotiate with Iran. To paraphrase Clemenceau, you know, Clemenceau said the the good Lord had gave us only ten commandments. Woodrow Wilson gives us fourteen, and Pompeo has now given Iran twelve commandments. They have to observe. And what, then the commandments are basically: we have to solve the problem, or somehow the issues of Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan have to be solved, and then. Uh, we could deal with the nuclear issue with Iran. I mean, it's an absurd argument. Iran's military budget at the high end is $30 billion a year. That's simply dwarfed by the amount of money the U.S. spends on on the military and with its archipelago of of bases. Yet, again, tapping into that resentment and deep-rooted hostility, it plays out in people's imagination that indeed uh, Iran is a great danger. Actually, the budget is even smaller. According to the Swedish, it's more like 19 billion, which is peanuts compared to Saudi Arabia spends 90 billion. So Iran is not a military power. But the way they were trying to portray in the media here through the administration is Iran is somehow trying to rebuild the old Iranian empire all the way from the Mediterranean to India. So it has a big military might and is about to devour all these countries through this big, huge military. And the military is actually not really a military. The Revolutionary Guards are more like a National Guard, American Guard, rather than you know professional hardened troops. They don't have any offensive uh, capability. And so the substitute often is now that General uh, Soleimani, who is in charge of the uh, special corps, which is actually, I think, 8,000 men. So he doesn't have a lot of tanks, planes, but he's supposed to have the term they use, diabolical powers. So if you have dialogical powers, you can have supernatural ability to threaten the United States. You don't have to have the planes or the submarines. Somehow you can conjure up from nothing ability to undermine U.S. power, which is, as you say, is ridiculous. If you compare the American military to Iran, it's a, it's a joke. There seems to be a fixation in some parts of the government in uh, Iran on uh, Israel and the Palestinian uh, question. Uh, Does Tehran see Palestine as a wedge to 
uh, endear itself to the larger uh, Arab Muslim population in the Middle East? There are probably people who see it that way, uh, that this is, again, because Iran is Shia, one way of basically appealing to outside was to be more militant about um, this Palestinian issue. But again, a lot of it is polemic uh, rhetoric, uh, because Iran has made sure it's never actually confronted Israel. So they talk about Palestinian rights and so on. Uh, they help support a Hezbollah, but Hezbollah's main concern is Lebanese politics. And Hezbollah has never really talked about liberation of Palestine. They're more talking about protection of uh, Lebanon. Um, and you find actually during the Khatami period, Khatami actually went on record saying that if the Palestinians were willing to settle with a two-state two solution, Iran would be happy to accept that. So it, for them, it's that the idea that Iran is out to destroy Israel. You can say, well, you know, in parades they say that, that in rhetoric, but this, I would say, is much more rhetorical. And, of course, Israel has often talked about destruction of the Islamic Republic, so it's tit for tat. But I think it plays very well in Israel for the Likud because they can go to the Israeli public and say, you know, Iran is an exist existential threat. They're talking about our destruction. Uh, they deny the Holocaust and so on. So they, this uh, resonates very well, I think, with the Israeli public. And a lot of people, at least in the United States, uh, are familiar with the uh, kind of theater that goes on in Iran after Friday prayers in Tehran and the chanting of uh, death to America and death to Israel. How much of that is uh, substantive and how much of that is actually theater? It's mostly actually, I think it's rhetoric or, I mean, there's part of it ideology, that separate thing. but. I think it's a street, uh, basically, uh, carnival. You could see this uh, right during the hostage crisis when there were mass demonstrations outside the American embassy and Iran, the U.S. was described as Satan. And here, actually, it's interesting, the word Satan comes from Persian word shaitan. But in Iran, shaitan has two double Double meanings. One is the obvious meaning. The other meaning is actually a naughty, uh, troublesome child. So if you have a five-year-old kid who's troublesome, you call them the little shaitan. And you find if the films of those uh, demonstrations, if you look at them carefully, even in um, Nightline, often uh, Carter was displayed as a puppet but he's dressed up as a little kid. So he, w he wasn't seen literally as a devil. He was seen as a troublesome uh, child. So th there's a lot of that, I think, in the public mood. But I think politically sophisticated people in Iran actually don't like those uh, demonstrations anymore. It's sound of a relic from the past. But for the diehards... Uh, this is important because this is for them, it's a way of reconfirming their uh, adherence to Khomeini's uh, basically doctrines. Uh, that reformers, moderates uh, don't want these slogans, but those who are still Khomeini's, uh, true Khomeini's, will continue the stuff about Israel. And again, Khomeini, he used it at rhetoric. Actually, when he sent um, trainers to Hezbollah, we know that he had given them instructions not to actually get into fighting with the Israelis. It was one thing to help Hezbollah. It was another thing to actually get into a physical confrontation with Israel. He didn't want that. What about the treatment of minorities in uh, Iran? There's a large uh, Kurdish minority, there are Arabs, there are Armenians, uh, Jews, and the uh, beleaguered uh, Baha'i yeah. sect. You have to separate the different minorities. I, the ones who are really, uh, I think, uh, have suffered, persecuted, the Baha'is, because they're seen as heretics from Shiism. Uh, 
and they were actually the largest community, so they suffered most, and much of the immigration out of Iran have been the Baha'i community. With the Christian minorities and Jewish, there hasn't been basically that type of persecution or even discrimination. Uh, they've preserved their religious rights that are already in the Constitution. So in terms of the Christians, Jews, they have their synagogues. Their uh, civil law is under religious law, not under Islamic law. With the Sunnis, which is basically... Uh, among the Baluchis, some Arabs, some Turkmans, some Kurds, not all Kurds. Um, there, there is a problem because although officially everyone is equal, is clearly the constitution is a Shi constitution. And technically, a Sunni can't become a president or supreme leader or so on. Uh, but in those areas also, you do have local elections. So uh, Sunnis do participate in uh, grassroots elections or parliamentary elections. Uh, but in, you can say oh, formally uh, there, is, there is a problem about Sunni minority within Shiism. But, but they don't, the state doesn't recognize that because they say the argument is, well, all Muslims are Muslims. And the minorities have representation in uh, parliament. I remember uh, when I was in Iran uh, hearing about an Armenian member of parliament. Yeah. Yes, actually, the, uh, the Armenians have two representatives. The Syrians, Assyrians have one. The Jews have uh, one. Uh, of course, the Baha'is are not accepted as a minority. They don't have it. So, in fact, actually, they get bigger representative than their numbers would warrant. But as a way of preserving or reassuring the minorities is to say you can always have uh, their your uh, uh, candidates. And actually, in those elections, often it's pretty f uh, free elections. There's no very little government involvement in those elections. What about the media in Iran? Is any of it, can any of it be critical of the government? It depends on the time. I mean, at periods you find a lot of open, opening up, you get a lot of criticism, the reformist press. Uh, during the Khatami period, there was a massive de uh, newspapers, journals, uh, very critical and so on. There was a clampdown. Under Rouhani, there was slight opening up. But it's always very restricted, what you could say. And so, but it's not complete, you know, state-controlled. So there are, you, you can, some newspapers reflect the reformist or moderate line, some conservative line. So it's not all in one step. And close reading shows that there's often, you know, where the differences are. Is there... Are there any examples, for example, in the old Soviet Union, there was Samizat, uh, underground yeah. press? Uh, it's Things circulate. I mean, the Samizat here is actually more in, insidious because there's a huge industry abroad of through Internet. And it's suspect, the, my suspicion is it's a huge amount of Saudi money. So there's a lot of uh, films, videos, documentaries made in England very professionally. So it's a lot of expensive uh, documentaries. And the idea basically is to undermine the Islamic Republic by creating this idea of nostalgia that everything was so good under the old regime the Shah was such a nice guy. There was so much reform, modernization, and this was all destroyed by the Islamic Republic. And this a very massive, actually, uh, propaganda has direct effect because people in Iran, even if the local press is uh, controlled, um, so many people have direct access to Internet, to you know, things that come out from Los Angeles, from London. Um, it's the people have direct access to all this stuff. And books that are published in America, let's say, laudatory books on the Shah, are quickly uh, translated in Iran and circulated in Iran. I've heard that outside of Israel, that 
Iran is the country where the United States is the most uh, popular. And culturally, that seems to be accurate. I remember in, on my couple of trips in the last decade to Iran, seeing lots of uh, Hollywood videos and books and yeah. magazines available from the U.S. Yeah, I think there's always some confusion between Iranians' approach to American culture, American citizens, and their attitude to the American government. So when it comes to the government, the U.S. policy, there's deep suspicion. But when it comes to person-to-person or American culture, uh, I think the average, especially someone who's educated, they're quite open to American culture. And Americans who visit Iran, they're surprised how friendly people are because they don't associate American individual with the American state. Uh, in some ways, the Iranians are very sophisticated about that. Um, and they, their suspicions or anger is really focused on American policy. So often, uh, it's not just American Western culture. Uh, people like basically Western music, uh, pop, pop music, uh, Western clothes. These are all, I think, for Iranians quite acceptable. What's not acceptable is a U.S. Western domination of the state. The National Security Advisor John Bolton has called for regime change in Iran. Uh, he made these comments addressing a group called the Mujahideen Khalq. Often, you see the acronym MEK. Uh, they've been described as a cult. They use the term MEK actually to camouflage the Mujahideen Islam because the true background of the Mujahideen came out from the Islamic movement. And it was, in fact, a genuine um, radical movement against the Shah. But after the revolution, it became a personality cult very much around one person, Rajavi, who had been in prison under the Shah. He converted the whole organization as his personal vehicle. And since then, it's become really no longer a political organization. I would call it as early a cult, a religious, not even religious, but a personality cult. So to become a, remain a member of the Mujahideen, you really have to see the leader as the imam, i.e. infallible person who represents God on earth until the return of the Messiah, the eventual imam to come eventually at the end of history. So the group is very small, but it's well-funded, uh, probably by the Saudis. So they can actually fund people like uh, Bolton, Genrich, Giuliani, number of people prominent in this administration. Uh, and uh, what is surprising is these America, prominent Americans are willing to actually listen and abide by their, the Mujahideen notion of uh, what Iran is like. So they t- talk about uh, that by next year, the Islamic Republic will be gone, implying that the Mujahideen would be then rulers of Iran, which fits fine with Iran, the Islamic Republic, because they can t- tell their American, their Iranian public, if you don't like us, look at who's there, Americans want to impose on you. And the vast majority of Iranians would actually prefer the Islamic Republic to the Mujahideen. The Iran deal, known as the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council plus Germany, was regarded as a major diplomatic a breakthrough, and by all accounts, particularly coming from the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Iran was in full compliance. The Director General of the IAEA in Vienna, uh, Yukia Amano, said that uh, Iran, before the U.S. pullout, was subject to the world's most robust verification regime. Now, after the 
Trump regime pulled out in May of, of 2018. Didn't that, wasn't that a boon to the factions in Iran who say you can't trust the Americans? Uh, they keep moving the goalposts. You make an agreement, they go against it. Uh, didn't it help uh, enforce that particular view that they, that they hold? Yeah, actually, when there were negotiations were going on, the diehards in Iran were saying, you can't trust America. And actually, they were saying, implicitly saying, we should continue with the nuclear program. They didn't say we wanted a nuclear bomb, but they wanted to have the capability of having a nuclear bomb if necessary. So they were not willing, they were not supportive of the deal. It was the moderates who argued that we really don't need this uh, program. We can keep the infrastructure, but give assurances to, uh, actually wasn't the United States, UN, that we're not going to build a bomb. When the U.S. withdrew, this actually adds fuel to the diehards to say, look, we told you so, Uh, you can't be trusted. And I'm sure what they're saying in privately is let's continue with the program. Fortunately, I think the moderates, Rouhani, uh, Zarif, the foreign minister, they still have the support of the leader that they should continue with uh, the, the agreement, even with the U.S. withdrawing. Why? Because they say, well, the agreement isn't just with the United States, it's with the UN, or to be more precise, the five plus one, i.e. the five UN uh, permanent members plus Germany. So that's they're the crucial countries that we should continue with that because as long as we continue with their support, that means they are obliged to give us help. So with the sanctions, uh, they should be morally obliged to break the sanctions, and give us support. So then the problem will come if the Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese actually buckle under the sanctions and stop buying uh, oil and have no trade, which is what Bolton wants. If they buckle there, I don't think they will buckle, but if they buckle there... Then the uh, the diehards have the upper hand. They say, "What reason do we have to abide by this? Let's go full speed, uh, not just enrich, but clearly enrich with the intention of making a bomb." When they get to that stage, of course, then Israel is going to bomb. Uh, but Israel, I don't think, has the capability of solving the problem. That will drag in United States to be able to deal with it. Because then at that point, it would be clear that for the diehards, the only way of survival is to build a bomb. What will need to happen for rapprochement between the United States and Iran? End of Trump. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, end of this uh, term, but that's a a big if. (laughs) Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. Thank you. You were just listening to an interview with Ervant Abrahamian on the U.S. and Iran, four decades of hostility. I talked with him at the University of Denver on April 24, 2019. Ervant Abrahamian is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Iranian and Middle Eastern History and Politics at the City University of New York. He's the author of The Coup, 1953, The CIA, and the Roots of Modern U.S.-Iranian Relations. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit media education organization Rise Up. We are in our 33rd year and are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media, such as Bill McKibben, Lawrence Wilkerson, Dar Jamal, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and Michael Yates. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org.
www.cdsmusicgroup.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Ervant Abrahamian on the U.S. and Iran, Four Decades of Hostility, and his book, The Coup, 1953, The CIA and the Roots of Modern U.S.-Iranian Relations, just call us at one 800 444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to Nader Hashemi. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Sexiga Nation, sometimes known as the Sexy Guy Nation. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting from Calgary, Alberta, the land of the Treaty 7 people, which includes the Blackfoot, people of Sixiga, Begani, and Kainai, the Dene people of Sutina, and the Stony Nakota people of Morla, including Chiniki, Bearspa, and Wesley First Nations, and the Métis Nation of Region 3. Oh, wait. 